chapter breaks are not inspired. John didn't put that there. So we're going to begin uh, at the true beginning of the paragraph, uh, chapter 3, verse 24. And I'm going to read through chapter 4. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Behold, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that he might live, we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen how can he love God whom he has not seen and this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also Whew. 
simple, profound, heavy stuff. John makes a point. And then he turns around and he makes the same point. And then he moves over here and makes the same point. Why is John repeating himself? Well, I don't know about you folks, but I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not the best student in the world. I need repetition. I need to hear it more than once. I need to hear it more than once. Do you love God? Here's the test. How many feet have you washed lately of your dirty brothers and sisters who've been walking out in the streets where people have been dumping their chamber pots? And if you, have, if you don't know what that is, ask me later. It's too gross for me to explain it now. They've been dumping their chamber pots out in the streets in the roads in Jerusalem and then those 12 guys came into the upper room and they refused to wash one another's feet they shouldn't have walked in the door without having washed one another's feet but they were all too proud and so they're all reclining on their divans around that low table where they're having that Passover meal and the stench is filling the room and Jesus lays aside his celebratory garment, wraps himself with a towel, and starts to wash their feet. And they are ashamed and shocked. He gets to Peter. You are not going to wash my feet. How dare you? This is so absurd. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. When you came, ladies and gentlemen, when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were actually allowing him to wash our feet. When he went to the cross, he was paying sin's penalty for us. He was taking on himself the filth that was ours, the moral filth that was ours and he was being judged by God the Father my God my God why have you forsaken me it was not so much what the Romans did to him and nailing him to that cross and ripping the flesh off of his back and jamming that crown of thorns down on his head which the Jewish leadership did or excuse me the Roman soldiers did. it was it was that invisible sacrifice that invisible judgment that came on him so that at the end of that about six hours on the cross he could say it is finished exactly what John points to he has sent his son to be the propitiation the satisfaction for our sin he had paid off our sin debt and if he so served us we ought also to serve one another Okay, Lord, I'll do it. By the strength of his Holy Spirit who dwells within us, left to ourselves, it isn't going to happen. But he hasn't left us to ourselves. He's granted to us God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, has come to dwell within us to do through us what only God can do through us. Left to ourselves, I don't care what you've done, you're going to be too proud to do some things in service to other people. But God the Holy Spirit dwelling within us gives us that spirit of humility that left to ourselves we would absolutely not have. We couldn't, and we have to do it. What we do in service to Christ is in defiance of our own pride. Back in the mid-1950s, there were some young men down in the Amazon basin that wanted to reach a tribe there that was unreached for the gospel, the Alka Indians. And they went to bring the gospel to those headhunters. 
and they got killed by those people whom they were trying to bring the gospel to. And the widows of those men came. Following in the footsteps of their husbands. And they brought the gospel to the Alka Indians. And they were so shocked that the wives of the men whom they had murdered were there to serve them. They listened and allowed the Lord Jesus to embrace them with his mercy, with his grace. What an account of foot washing that is. John 3.24 Now he who keeps his commandments go into all the world and preach the gospel. Do it. I'm giving to you, Jesus says, to the apostles, but also to all the fruit of their ministry, which is us. He's given to us the responsibility of voicing the gospel, simple gospel of God's mercy and grace to the world. What is that gospel? Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son become flesh, become a man. As it, as it accurately, biblically states in the Nicene Creed, Jesus is true God of true God, undiminished deity, true God of true God, true man of true man, full humanity, joined together in one person. Perfect in his humanity. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, said John the Baptist. Those Passover lambs who are being inspected and sacrificed, even as Jesus is being inspected and sacrificed, they all had to be absolutely perfect. The priests were looking for flaws. And Jesus stood before his worst enemies, the Jewish leadership. They could find no flaw. The high priests are examining the one whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God, and they can find no flaw. They bring him to Pilate. We want you to crucify him. Why? You just do it. What are you accusing him of? You just do it. You just do it. And so in order to prevent a riot, Pilate washed his hands of the blood of this just man, publicly and gave him over to crucifixion and the Jewish leadership led the crowd when he said I'm washing my hands of the blood of this just man and they cried out let his blood be on us and on our children and then Jesus went to the cross and paid sins penalty he is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. And then he has given us, as his loyal followers, the responsibility of voicing that truth, of pointing others to him. That's whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and, and he, Christ, in him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the, whole, by the Spirit whom He has given us. As He had promised to them in John 14, the Holy Spirit who has been with you will be in you. I know I'm repeating from last Sunday. That's okay. Repetition's the price of learning. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. God the Holy Spirit makes His presence known principally by the message that accompanies his presence. And so it is with the fallen angels, the fallen spirits, the wicked spirits, whom we call demons. By the way, that English word demon comes from the Greek word daimon, which means a divine being. What? Why were the Greeks and Romans calling these fallen angels divine beings? Because that's who they were worshiping. In the pagan temples, they are knowingly worshiping these living entities who had power. 
They're worshiping them, trying to get some kind of benefit out of them. But they're fallen angels. They're wicked spirits. But that's where the word English word demon comes from, is that Greek word daimon, a divine being. Yeah, divine wicked being. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. How do we identify the wicked spirits from God the Holy Spirit? By the message that accompanies them. They're always voicing a message in one way or another, in one kind of another or another. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. How do you test the spirits? You know the word, and when you hear a message that doesn't fully track with the word, that measure by which it does not track with God's word, you reject that message. You compare every message, including mine, including mine, you compare it to God's word. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Of course, there are very, some very famous false prophets. Muhammad is a false prophet. There are all kinds of, even if you read through the Hebrew Scriptures, you read in, in the early days of the church, there are always false prophets. There are always Jehovah's Witnesses. Those are false prophets. Mormonism, that's false prophets. You compare their message with what is found in God's Word. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this we know the Spirit of God. This is the core doctrine. This is the core doctrine. Every time you encounter somebody that says, Hey, I've got some God truth you need to hear. Okay, I have one question for you. Before we even start the conversation, we're going to start it here. Who is Jesus? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. That he is God come in the flesh. Does the Bible say that? Oh, yes, it says that. Let me tell you about, I may have already shared this with you. I'm going to bore you. I was like 17 years old. And I had just gotten plugged into Christ maybe six months before. And I'm reading the Bible. And I've got my Bible was my dad's old Lutheran Confirmation Bible that he got in 1920 when he was confirmed as a Lutheran. And it's a 1901 American Standard Version, which is really, in the Old Testament, they actually use the word Jehovah rather than Lord all in caps. And so I'm reading in Jeremiah 23 on a Friday night. And it says in Jeremiah 23, there's going to be this one, this person who's going to rise out of David. He's going to be from the root and branch of David. And this is his name by which he will be called Jehovah, our righteousness. And I thought immediately to myself, well, I wonder what a Jehovah's Witness would do with that. And so the very next morning, Saturday morning, I'm just finishing mowing the yard, and a Jehovah's Witness walks up to me. We're talking 1965, and he's wearing a suit and a tie, and he's, he starts to talk to me about God. And I said, oh, are you a Jehovah's Witness? <clears throat> well, yes, I am. I'm not exaggerating. Oh, yes, I am. I said, I was reading something in the Bible last night, last night and I'd like you to explain it to me if you could. Oh, I'd be happy to do that. So I went in the house. I got this 1901 American Standard Version, which is what I'd read the night before. And I'm standing in the doorway of our front door. He's on the porch. And I just started reading the passage. He is, this one will rise from the root and branch of David. And he says, oh, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Okay. And this is his name by which he will be called. Jehovah, our righteousness. I literally cannot exaggerate what happened next. He blew up. Well, that's an exaggeration. He didn't... <laughs> and no, smoke really wasn't coming out of his ears, but if it was physically possible, it would have... He started screaming at me. 
Who taught you that? Who taught you that? Who taught you that? Yes, shaking his fist, yes, stomping his foot, screaming. Who taught you that? Who taught you that? Who taught you that? I said, what are you talking about? You told me what it means. And I'm like, Lord, what do I do? Finally, he stomped off. Well, what had happened? God, the Holy Spirit, was pursuing that man, brought him, set the whole thing up, brought him to me, and he told me what the passage meant, but it wasn't what he was expecting. But the Holy Spirit just reached back and sucker punched him. Lord willing, I'm sure, a Lord willing, it finally drove him into the kingdom. Because it came out of his own mouth. That's Jesus. Jehovah our righteousness. The Spirit of God had defied that false spirit. His false teaching. And it came out of his own mouth. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that He is God come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, the false Christ, the one, the Antichrist, by the way, and I pointed this out, the Greek prefix anti means against, as it does in English, it also means in the place of. The capital A Antichrist who is to come, called the beast in the book of Revelation, called the little horn in Daniel 7, called the Roman prince in Daniel 9, called the northern prince in Daniel 11 and 12, will actually claim to be the Messiah. He will be standing in the temple in Jerusalem in the midpoint of the tribulation, and he will turn to the Jewish fellows that are giving him a tour of the building and say to them, you fellows need to understand, I'm your Messiah. And that's when the Jewish people would say, "Uh, mm, uh, uh, no. And he will become their enemies, and they will become his enemies. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. The Roman emperors claimed, demanded worship. They claimed to be gods. They were demanding a worship that belonged rightfully only to the true and living God and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. You are of God, little children. You have overcome them because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Well, we're just standard old normal uh, Roman citizens or even people that don't have Roman citizenship. Here we are. How have we overcome the emperor and these forces that are demanding we bow the knee to by not doing it? By, say, by choosing death or torture rather than disloyalty to Jesus, you have defeated them. The point of their intimidations is to get you to bow the knee. And when you don't, you've won. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us, as you, my readers. He who is not of God does not hear us or you. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We are bringing the truth to people, and when they turn away from it, when they rejected it, when they reject it, they are disclosing their own spirit. Beloved, let us love one another. What was it that got the attention of the people in the Greco-Roman world, even in the Hebrew world? When they saw 
Well, one of the great statements was, behold how they love one another. They're serving one. It wasn't standard Greek-Roman culture to be servants of one another. And when people came to faith in Christ in their towns, in their villages, in their communities, when they came to faith in Christ, and that gospel affected them such that they became servants, which was really contrary to the culture, that got people's attention. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That ought to characterize you just as it has characterized Him, especially in His sending His Son for us. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son, only begotten Son, the heir of all things, the one upon whom His greatest love, God the Father's greatest attention and greatest affection, greatest love, greatest loyalty was toward His Son. And yet what did He do? He sent His Son to sacrifice Himself. How did the Father feel? How did the Father feel about sending His Son It was an act of pure, unadulterated mercy for us in that He sent His Son and that the Son went. And that the Son went. That's love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us in that God has sent His only begotten Son. The focus of the air of the entire creation was sent. He sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live. We who were dead and trespasses and sins might be made alive. Have a glad welcome before Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God. But that He loved us. When we explain the gospel to people, we're not telling, oh, let me tell you how much I love God. No, let me tell you how much God loves me. Let me tell you how much God loves you. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. That torture, that horrible experience God the Son went through on the cross in order to make us forgivable. His Father is now free to forgive us. That's the gospel. That's the good news, is that God the Father is now set totally free to forgive us and give us a complete glad welcome, a place at the head table in his kingdom. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, John, (laughs) thanks. Now I have to do something too. Yeah, you do. And it won't even be in any way comparable to what God has already done. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we loved one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. And when John says, no one has seen God at any time, what he's talking about is no human being has stepped into the unrestrained, holy presence of God in heaven and survived the experience. (laughs) No one has seen God in all of His fullness at any time. But have we seen God through 
And it's from a safer standpoint? Yes, we have. Let me give you an example here in the Gospel of John. One of the most magnificent testimonies found in John's Gospel. Jesus and the apostles were walking through Jerusalem. And they're walking by a guy who's been sitting there at the side of the road for many years, always doing the same thing. He's blind. He's got a little sign hanging around his neck that said, born, says, born blind, and he's sitting there with a tin cup so people can give to him. He's a beggar. And this is the narrative. Come on, Mark. Now, as Jesus passed by, this is John chapter 9, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, while the guy is sitting there, who can hear? He's not deaf, he's blind. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why, certainly this had to be a result of somebody's sin, his or his, and so God's punishing before he even sins, or his... Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Now this man sitting there is hearing all these words. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Thanks a lot. And he said to him, go wash, not just anywhere, but wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him, who formerly was blind, to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath. <gasps> when Jesus made the clay, that's work, Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him, saying, how he had received his sight. So he said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I wash it, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs. And there was a division among them. Good. They said to the blind man, again, why, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. 
His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, the Jewish leadership, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, Jesus, was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue, (gasps) publicly shamed. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Folks, this is a guy who was blind, now instructing the Jewish religious leadership (laughs) on the simple logic of what has happened. Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since The world began. It has been unheard that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You are completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Well, that's what you do when you can't win the debate. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he, Jesus, had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord? Remember, he's never seen Jesus. (laughs) Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, And it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And he worshipped him. Folks, if Jesus isn't true God of true God, that's blasphemy. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, exactly what John says here in 1 John, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see, (laughs) that's dripping with sarcasm, (laughs) may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. People don't reject Jesus because they don't understand. They reject him because they do, and they don't want what he's offering. Every single person who finds themselves in the lake of fire will have been there by choice. At some point, 
in some level, Jesus will have presented himself to every single person and they will have all made a choice. What does John say? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time in all of his fullness, but had the blind man who then, with mud on his eyes, gone to this pool of Siloam, he, by means of his ears, to use it in a metaphorical way, he was seeing Jesus even before he washed went to exactly the pool Jesus told him to go to, washed his eyes, and then Jesus led him through the... All that blind man does is follow the logic. That's all he does. He follows the logic. I was blind, born blind, now I see. Folks, that's a God event, period, over and out. Don't try to come up with any other explanation. Any other explanation is from a fallen angel, spirit, demon. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time in all of his unrestrained holiness. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And when we start acting that way, people will step back and say, hmm, I know that fellow Stephen. That's not Stephen. Hmm. I wonder what has happened to Stephen. And Stephen can say to them, well, yeah, you weren't seeing Stephen. You were seeing Jesus. He just happened to be using my corporeal, (laughs) my body instead of his own. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. God the Holy Spirit dwells within us, enabling us to do what we could never have done left to ourselves. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. That is the message we voice. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, which is a very dangerous thing to do in this hostile world, is of God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Folks, Jesus hasn't, God the Father hasn't given us assignment without any resources and said, okay, well, when we come to that great white throne, when we come to that uh, judgment seat of Christ, we'll see how you did. No, he is with us every step of the way, supplying that energizing person, God the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, that we might fulfill what he's called us to do. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. We heard the message, we believed it. God is love. The very essence and definition of what authentic love is in all of its depth and fullness is found in the person of God himself. God is love. And he who abides in love, dwells in love, abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. The same resources made available to God the Son. And as I've pointed out before, when, when God the Son became man, he actually laid aside the independent use of his non-moral attributes. He laid aside his omniscience. We're told in the Gospel of Luke, he learned. He was a learner. He grew in grace and in knowledge. 
He laid aside his omniscience. He laid aside his omnipresence and localized himself to a single human body. He laid aside his omnipresence and he laid aside his omnipotence. He was dependent upon the Father. Every miracle that he did was by the resource supplied to him by God, the presence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in his life. He is the very quintessential, beautiful picture of what it looks to be living a life in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Father. Love has been perfected in us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because he as he is, so are we in this world. And so when we stand before our God at, the, at what is called the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, this is, a ju- this is not the great white throne judgment described in Revelation chapter, in the close of the book of Revelation, chapter 19. This is the judgment seat of Christ, and the word that is used is the word Bema, which was a, a judgment in the Corinthian games, and it's from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, it was where they passed out the rewards to the victors in the athletic competitions. They didn't punish the losers. They rewarded the victors. And so when we stand before our God for this judgment that he's speaking of, it will be for purposes of reward, the measure by which we have walked with him and been used by him and been energized by him is the measure by which we will have more glory in the kingdom above the basic plan. There's the basic plan, and then there's the extras. And this is a judgment that qualifies us for the extras. Love has been perfected in us in this that we have, may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. I love it when I see Christians going home. One of my favorite testimonies, I went to this funeral probably 20 years ago, memorial service, fellow who was the song leader at Sunrise Baptist Church for several years, Lloyd Dozdahl. Lloyd was a big guy, but he got cancer. And he was up at Alpine Village in the nursing home there, declining, 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 and his wife had sat with him all through that night, And his daughter, about 38 years old, came in. And they were talking for about 20 minutes. And about 9 a.m., Lloyd, who was so emaciated, he was skeletal. He didn't have enough energy to be even able to lift his hand. All of a sudden, about 9 a.m., his eyes flew open. He lifted his arms. He sat up with a look of ecstasy on his face and fell back. And his daughter gave that testimony at his memorial service. I'll take that. (laughs) I'll take that. He was being welcomed into the glorious presence of the holy God. And it wasn't frightening. It was ecstatic. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. Torment does not await us. Glory awaits us. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. If you're afraid to enter the presence of God, you better go back and study the gospel because there is no fear in the hearts of those who know they're forgiven. There is no fear in love. We love him because he first loved us. I'm glad God takes that responsibility on himself. He is the shepherd who goes out in search of the lost sheep and brings us home. And then we thank him for bringing us home to the safe place.
If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, that's the acid test. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? When we wash one another's feet, we are actually washing God's feet. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God, this is a commandment that we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And so that's the question we can always ask ourselves. Am I, Mark, loving my brothers and my sisters in Christ? Am I washing their feet? Am I defying my own feelings, my own pride in serving them? If I'm not, then I better go before the Lord and say, Lord, please cleanse me of this pride. Please cleanse me of these grievances that I've been carrying that I may be an imitator of you. Jesus died on the cross for the very people who had driven the nails into his hands and feet, had pressed that crown of thorns down on his head, had ripped the flesh off of his back. He was paying the penalty for the sins of the very men who had crucified him. And what did that centurion leading the crucifixion team say? Truly. This was the Son of God. Our Lord, we ask that you would not allow us to turn away and walk away from what you, you God the Holy Spirit, has, have said to us today. As you brought to our minds who we need to seek out and serve, by and how to do it. We ask that by the strength of the indwelling Holy Spirit, by the strength that comes from your presence, you might enable us to be imitators of Jesus and follow you and love our brothers and sisters in Christ and in this world. For indeed, you paid, as John says in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, my little children, these things I write to you that you might not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate a defense attorney with their father who is the propitiation and satisfaction for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. May we be imitators of you, Jesus, in serving even those who do not yet know you, especially those who have harmed us in some way in the past. May we be their servants. We ask this of you, good shepherd Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. I'm going to invite you.